Well, good morning, church. Welcome to the third week of Advent. Our theme for the week is joy, and we are today just going to jump right into it. So we're going to begin with our scripture. Today, our reading is from Luke. It's going to be very brief, and it comes from the second chapter in verse 10. This is the moment when the angel appears to the shepherds who are, we're told, tending their flock on the hills at night. Um, And when the angel appears to them, they, of course, are uh, scared. It's something they certainly don't know or recognize, or it's not something that they are accustomed to seeing, uh, and so they're terrified. And in response to that, the angel says in this verse 10, it says, do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. Now, we are certainly familiar with that as Christians, as we've celebrated the Christmas season year after year. Um, And for a lot of us, this idea of joy is a major and primary theme of Christmas. for some of us, we may have decorations around our house that say joy. Uh, wrapping paper comes with that term on it. But the question we have to ask today is what, what is joy? For many people, joy is something that is really hard to define. We know, for example, that it is different than happiness. It's more, it's more profound, it's a, a deeper thing than happiness. Um, but when we ask what, what is it then, we have a really hard time putting our finger on exactly what joy is. There's a reason for that, and that is that we don't, as Christians sitting in the 20th century in the West, in America particularly, we don't have a good grid to understand what biblical joy is. We have likely experienced it. We can uh, taste it at times in our life. Um, And as we go through today and we talk about what the biblical understanding of joy is and the call to be joyful people looks like, Uh, you're going to begin to recognize moments in your life maybe when you've experienced that, and that hopefully will help us to define it. But for most of us, we've experienced it, but we can't say what it is. Today, as I said, we're going to be looking at this theme of joy, and we'll be looking through the scriptures and pulling out descriptions and moments when God's people have experienced or expressed joy. And while the most joyful moments, that of the birth of our Savior, and then certainly his resurrection happened in the, the New Testament, we get our best handle, our best understanding on what biblical joy is as we look at our Old Testament. And the term for joy shows up first in Deuteronomy, and we're going to turn to that now. It comes in Deuteronomy 20, 28, and it's verse 47. And it says this, Because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully, with gladness of heart, with the abundance of everything, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lack of everything. Certainly, this is not the most joyful picture. Um, This is, in in reality, a curse that God is is giving to his people, telling them that because they fail to live up to their calling, because they fail to recognize him and his gifts for them, they will ultimately find themselves being conquered. But buried in this brief scripture, this curse, is this, certainly the phrase, joyful, but also this concept and the idea that as a people of God, we are called to be joyful. And it says that we are to joyfully rejoice in the gifts that God has given us. And the idea and and the sort of the principle that has been put forth here is that when we fail to be joyful people, things fall apart. Well, it doesn't say that to be joyless is a sin. That's nowhere in the text. Uh, To be joyless is rather to fail to thrive. This idea, this concept of joy in the biblical text is a key element to thriving. And that's what God is speaking to here the idea that if Israel fails to be joyful, to be exuberant, to 
to celebrate the goodness that God has put into their lives and their, their lives together, then ultimately it will go bad for them. As we turn to other occurrences of this term and theme of joy in the Old Testament, we won't read them all today, but I do want to describe a few of them for you. In 1 Samuel, when David defeats the Philistines, we're told that the people respond and rejoice. They fill the streets and they, they rejoice and sing with joy, we're told. After Solomon is crowned, we're told that the people play pipes and they rejoice with joy. In Chronicles, David gives the speech to his people in which he calls them to recognize the things that God has done for them. In response, they bring 3,000 animals to offer as burnt sacrifices and they fill the streets. And again, we're told that they ate and they drank before the Lord on that day with great joy. In Ezra, we read that the time when after having returned from the Babylonian exile, the people lay the beginnings, the foundation stones for the second temple for the return of God. And we're told that at that moment, people fill the streets and shout with joy. Then in Nehemiah, we read about the time when he rebuilds the wall around Jerusalem. And this is the moment when the city is reestablished. And it's a big moment in the history of Israel as they return from exile. And in response, as you can guess, once again, the people were told they play pipes and they shout with joy. There are many references to joy and singing and praising and shouting and rejoicing within the Psalms and the Proverbs, too many, in fact, to even begin to discuss today. But perhaps for us, paradoxically, the book, which is often thought to be the most unhappy, that of Ecclesiastes, is the book that teaches us the most about joy. And that's where we're gonna spend the bulk of our time today as we study this concept of joy as we approach Christmas. Before we get into the actual readings for today, we need to talk about the meaning of a Hebrew word, and that word is havel. As we translated it into English centuries ago, it came into our scriptures uh, most often translated as vanity. And many of today's translations continue to use that term. And that term within English actually has, has changed, as its meaning has morphed. And so as we come and reread that translation, we often miss the actual importance and the actual meaning of the Hebrew word that stands behind it. Initially, that term vanity, while it means today to be vain, to be self-absorbed, it meant an emptiness. And so someone who was vain, we think now is self-absorbed, but at that time, someone who was vain was sort of empty and meaningless. And some, some translations today use that meaningless term. Uh, I believe the NIV, for example, is, is one of those. Um, but the word havel actually means and describes a vapor or a mist. It is uh, perhaps most understood to us today as the moment when you go outside on a cold, brisk morning and you breathe that first breath and you see your breath and that sort of vapor as it leaves your mouth and it exists for just a moment and then is just gone. Um, that is the term, that is the idea that this writer is calling to mind and using. And so you will see that I have used the word vapor in the place of Havel as a more sort of accurate presentation of the ideas that the, the writer wants us to understand. As he opens, his opening line reads as follows. It says, vapor of vapors, says the teacher. Vapor of vapors, all is vapor. What do people gain from all the toil at which they toil under the sun? It's quite an opening. That's quite a first impression. And he's coming right out of the gate and one thing I should say about Ecclesiastes is it's not a book like some of our New Testament books which develop ideas and thoughts and, and lay out arguments. It is much more of a, a meditation on the purpose or meaning or in fact meaningless or brevity, the vaporness 
of life. And so it weaves back and forth between these expressions of the, the brevity and the fragility of life. Woman, he's talking about the utter uselessness and purposelessness of life. And then the next moment, he's talking about joy, which is where we want to spend our time and end up going, and how we ought to celebrate and how we ought to uh, live our life. Um, and then the next moment, he veers right back into just utter despair over the meaningless and the vaporness of his life. Um, and so we're going to concentrate first here on this opening, which sets the theme. And then he goes on to say this. He says, all things are vapor, more than one can express. The eye is not satisfied with seeing or the ear filled with hearing. What has been will be and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. In this moment, the, the teacher, as he's called in the text, points us to the fact that there is ultimately nothing new. Um, and it is this moment of despair that there's nothing to be discovered that has not already been discovered. There's nothing to be said or spoken or written or thought that has not already been thought. And it is, as the text opens, it is, it is a book of despair and one of the reasons which it has been called the most unhappy book in the text. He goes on from there to say, so I applied my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a chasing after wind, for in much wisdom is much worry, and those who increase knowledge increase sorrow. So after swearing off seeking new experiences and new things, he turns his attention to learning, to seeking wisdom uh, and knowledge. And he finds out, in fact, that even that is folly, he says, or vapor. It is meaningless. He finds that in gaining wisdom and gaining the knowledge which he seeks, ultimately it just brings in, into his life more worry and more concern. And then he goes on to say, as a result, he says, so I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vapor and chasing after wind. I hated all my toil in which I had toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to those who come after me. And who knows whether they will be wise or foolish, yet they will be master of all for which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This is also vapor. As he's reflecting on his work of his life, his toil, as he says, he thinks to himself and he wonders, what good is all of the work that I have done? What good is all of the wealth that I have amassed? What good are all the things that I have accumulated? Because in the end, I will be gone and they will be left to someone else. And who knows whether or not they're going to take care of that? Who knows whether or not they're going to be wise and uh, run the business as well as I did? Who knows what, what, what is the purpose of it all? In the end, it serves no purpose. From there, he goes on to say, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy upon humankind, those to whom God gives wealth, possessions and honor so that they lack nothing of all that they desire. Yet God does not enable them to enjoy these things, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vapor. It is a grievous ill. And what he's saying here is that he looks around the world and he sees all of these people who've done the same things that he has done. They have amassed wealth and good things and food and homes and prestige. And because of the way that they approach their life, they enjoy none of it. They're so caught up with the accumulation. They're so caught up with prestige. They're so caught up with becoming people of honor that they fail to enjoy the things that God has given them. And he goes on from there and he says, this is what I have seen to be good. 
It is fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of the life God gives us, for this is our lot. Likewise, all to whom God gives wealth and possessions and whom he enables to enjoy them and to accept their lot and find enjoyment in their toil, this is the gift of God. And so here is the writer taking that swerve into what is actual joy, what is actual contentment, what is the purpose. And he says here, it is actually a gift of God. It is a gift to be one of the people who can look at the things you have been given and to enjoy them. It is a gift from God to be able to work and actually enjoy the work. He said the fruits of his labor. He has spent his whole time laboring, toiling, working to amass things, to amass wealth, to amass prestige. And the end, all of those things that he has accumulated, lets him down. What he says instead is that we ought to enjoy, find joy in the things that we do have, and we ought to find joy in the work. We ought to find something we can do with our lives to enjoy. That is the gift of God. He goes on from there to talk more about what he thinks to be joyful. And he says, so I commend enjoyment for there is nothing better for people under the sun than to eat and to drink and to enjoy themselves. For this will go with them in their toil through the days of life that God gives them under the sun. And he goes on from there. He says, go eat your bread with enjoyment and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has long ago approved what you do. Enjoy life, all the days of your vapor like life that are given you under the sun. And so he there at the last minute gives you that last little dagger reminder that life is but this vapor. So what is it then that the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us is to be sought? What is the, what is the joy to be found in life? If all is vapor like, if all is meaningless, if we're only here for a brief moment, how ought we be spending our time? And he tells us that we ought to be enjoying one another. We ought to be eating, drinking, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die is, is what he says, right? It's, it's a phrase that we have and it comes from our, our very scriptures. This idea that life is to be enjoyed. The author of Ecclesiastes shows us the emptiness of our pursuit of happiness. And instead he points us to pure and meaningful joy. We experience this, but often we just don't know that that's what we're actually bumping up against. We don't have words for it. Like I said before, we unfortunately don't have a grid for this. But these are the moments when we sit back and we say, this is what life is about. For some of us, there are those moments that we have, and sometimes they're, they're solitary. Sometimes they're us alone, and they're the moments perhaps when we walk through the woods or we take a walk or we are enjoying a cup of coffee on a quiet morning, uh, perhaps reading scripture or praying or sometimes just sitting in the presence of God. And we have that thought in our head. Uh, we have that awareness in our soul that this, this, is, this is life. This is what we're meant to do. But true joy, the joy that the writer of Ecclesiastes is telling us of, the, the, the joy that we see the people of God expressing in the streets in reaction to the things that God has done for them, is a joy that takes place and is experienced in a community of people. As I think about my own life, when I have said to myself, this is what it's all about. I think of spring days when it's beautiful outside and it's not yet so hot that it's oppressive. Uh, days when my wife and I have spent perhaps in the yard getting things straight and ordered. The kids have been playing and screaming and running and enjoying themselves. And the evening is coming on and we're ready to settle down. And we've invited friends and family over and our parents arrive and our friends arrive and we throw food on the grill and we hand out drinks to everybody. And, 
And for a time, as the kids play in the yard and we sit and we talk and we enjoy each other and we literally eat, drink, and are happy, we rest and we just enjoy the moment. That's joy, right? That's the moment when you think, yeah, this is what it's all about. This is the good stuff in life. And that is what joy is. That is the, the moment and the time and the experience that the writer of Ecclesiastes points us to. The reason that I have said that we are ill-equipped to experience joy, to know joy, to recognize joy, is because we as a culture, as a community, are so intent and focused on the individual. Happiness is an individual feeling. Happiness is an individual pursuit. Joy is a communal experience. And so we are trained and taught and encouraged to seek happiness. We are encouraged to seek the next job, the next promotion, the next recognition, where we are encouraged to seek more money, which we think will make us happy, more things, which we think will make us happy. And they do for a brief time. But happiness is brief. Happiness is but a vapor. Joy is this deep abiding recognition that all is right and well with our soul. It is being at peace with each other and with God. And it requires a community. It requires an engagement with other people and with God to experience that joy. Because we seek happiness and we do that through our work and our accumulation of things, we're incapable of finding joy because joy is not to be found there. Joy is a communal endeavor. Joy is the social exhilaration that we feel as we merge with others and with God. Joy is the profound, the deep, the the to your core wellness and gladness that we experience that comes from being connected to God and with God's people. Joy is a here and now thing. Joy requires you to be present with God and with people. You can see why joy was connected with the festivals. You can see why joy in the Old Testament is always spoken of as the people of God rejoicing, as David defeats the Philistines, or as Solomon is crowned king, or the foundation stones and the walls are built for the new temple in the new Jerusalem. These are moments when the people of God come together with God and they rejoice. They spill into the streets and they sing and they dance and they play instruments and they party and they drink and they eat and they experience life together in the moment. This is joy. You can also see why Deuteronomy, the first moment when we read about joy, issues a warning. And he says, if you cannot find joy, when you go through your life and you toil in life and you go about your work and you do it without joy, it will fall apart. If we don't come to the point where we can relish our community, if we can't find joy in our togetherness with each other and with God, well, then all we're left with is what the author of Ecclesiastes says. We're left with mere vapor, meaninglessness, Our whole purpose in being created is to experience this joy. God created out of the love that existed within the Trinity. Out of that love and that community flows the creation, flows man, flows woman, flows relationship. And so we are told that they were put in the garden where God could come and walk and talk and experience life with them. It is this community and this relationship with one another and God that is joy. And we are called to find that, to experience that, to enjoy that. Joy is found in community. At times, we can find that in the community that is just us and God. That, of course, is community. 
but it is most easily accessible and most readily available to us, most easily found when we gather as a community, as one with God. It's found in recognizing that all we usually struggle for in our lives, all of the toil that we put towards accumulating things and wealth and prestige and honor ultimately is vapor. And what really exists, what will endure, is the relationship that we have with God and each other. This is why the holidays are such a big deal. This is why the time of Christmas is exciting and exhilarating and a time full of hope and rejoicing. Because for even those who don't recognize the religious, spiritual, Christian reality of Christmas, this is a time when, for a moment, we all stop. We gather, we eat, we drink, we spend time together, we enjoy each other's company, and we stumble upon perhaps unknowingly, we stumble upon the experience of joy. So when we read that the angel tells the shepherds on the hill, do not be afraid, I bring you good news of great joy for all people, we can begin to understand and see what he's talking about. He brings news of this child who has been born, the child who will ultimately reunite humanity with God, who through his death and resurrection, through his sacrifice, through his work and his teaching, will teach us once again what it means to be the people of God. And not only Israel, not only the nation that God had established through Abraham, but this is the moment in time when that promise made to Abraham comes true for the whole world. The time when all nations will be brought together, when all peoples, not just Israel, all peoples will be brought together, will be reunited with God as the family of God. That is true joy. The writer of Ecclesiastes knew this truth. He knew that the things that we spend our time on the most, our pursuit of happiness, our pursuit of wealth and accumulation and the next thing that we think will make us happy, and then the next thing ultimately fails. That our very life is but a mist, a vapor, here for a brief moment and then it's gone. And he says to his readers, why would you waste your time? Why do you seek after these things that you know, that I know, that we all know, ultimately will fail to bring us true joy? Instead, gather. Instead, become a community. Become the people of God, with God. Unite with God. Recognize the things that you've been given. Enjoy those things. Enjoy the good things in life. But the writer of Ecclesiastes knew nothing of the joy that was to come. As we sit here now, a couple weeks from Christmas, we will celebrate true joy. We will celebrate the birth of the Messiah, the birth of Jesus, who will bring us into relationship, who will bring us, who will create the new family for us. This is one of the reasons that Paul and New Testament writers focus so heavily on the family of God, the people of God, the unity of God, is because in being family, in being unified with one another and with God, that we find joy. I'm sure we have all heard spoken this idea that joy transcends happiness, that joy in some way encompasses and can be present even in sadness. And as we've talked today about joy, I hope that becomes apparent how that can be. Even in the midst of sorrow and sadness, of in pain, of brokenness, we can still gather as the people of God. We can still experience our togetherness. We can still experience the presence of God the reunification of the family of God. We can experience the peace that God has to offer to us. We can experience the life together, even when we're sad. I think, for example, the times when 
my family has gathered when we've had a death in the family. Those moments, of course, are, are moments of great grief when we have lost someone who we loved. But they're at the same time, there's, there's great joy and laughter and, and happiness even to be found in the midst of that suffering and sorrow. And that is because those are the times when we gather. Under normal circumstances, this would be the point when I encourage you to get together, when I encourage you to share drink and food and happy times and laughter and recognize that we are brought together by God and that we are in his presence and that we are his people. That, of course, is not wise at the moment. It's difficult. But I think that makes the point. It is difficult. It's difficult, one, together, but it's difficult on us to not be able to do that. We realize that this moment and this time that we can't gather, that we can't, families can't gather in large numbers, that we can't gather with friends, that we can't have our office parties and our family gatherings. To be robbed of that hurts. We recognize that our joy has been stolen. So rather than encourage us to gather in the midst of a pandemic, I want to call on us all to find creative ways to connect with one another. If we understand that joy requires connectedness with God and each other, that joy is the experience that we have when we come together, and we look into the face of a pandemic that means that we can't gather in ways that we would want, how can we then do that? How can we make use of phones and letters and Christmas cards and online tools and Facebook and Zoom and all these tools that we thankfully do have? How can we be intentional about using those? How can we look for, find, and even create moments of joy as we enter our Christmas season? May today be the day that we all recognize, seek out, and accept the gift that God has given us, the gift of joy.